everybody. This is Issa Cosette, and you are listening to Issa's Way, your favorite podcast that you didn't know existed, you didn't know you needed, but we're so glad you're here. And this week, we have a very special guest coming live from Trinidad and Tobago, Mr. The Great Wordsmith Academic Almikar Sanatan. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here, Issa. I'm blessed and also very nervous, <laughs> but just excited <laughs> to be able to sit with you and just learn more about your journey and what you're doing um, in Trinidad and Tobago and once again, how you're bringing light to one masculinity and in, in youth and your poetry and creative writing and just all of the great things that you're doing. Um, so I'm just happy to have you. Can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Okay, cool. I guess I will just deliver it like a formal bio. Uh, my name is Amilka Sanatan, and I'm based in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm a lover of the Caribbean space. I do academic work. I do creative writing, and I also do activist work. My focus is on socio-spatial justice, the way we think about the intersections between transforming these social inequalities in our lives, but as well as the spatial inequalities, how geography really denies us dignity if we don't give it the type of justice that we need in our lives. And that's the work that I do, especially with young people. That's so amazing. Just transforming those spaces, just bringing life. I was wondering, how has your poetry kind of been influenced by your work in academia and as your, and your activism work? Yeah, that's a quite interesting question because uh, I'm a PhD student right now and it took me a long while to get to this point. I would say long, but long in terms of comparative, you know, comparative way of looking at what other people would have done and where I am in my life. But it's quite interesting because the word academic doesn't really resonate with me as yet. Perhaps one is afraid to say that they're academic until they get drafted into the NBA of academics. You know, like uh, I'm a good college prospect. I don't think like I'm part of the team yet. When we say academic, it sounds like a full-time professor or somebody when they provide an opinion, it has institutional backing. But I am an academic in the, in the sense that I am a student here, a graduate student, I have a long-term project, and I've taught at the university for um, half of a decade, really. And what does that mean? It means that I am exposed to a process where I have to do research, and that means deep reading and deep listening. So research is a very complicated way to talk about deep reading and deep listening. And I'm therefore exposed to certain ideologies, literature, which I wouldn't find on my own or as quickly, and also research methodologies. And that is what feeds the poetry. I think they serve very different masters and very different audiences. When you do academic work, there's an assumption that there's a reader and there's an argument you're making to a reader. Poetry, I think, happens where we create arguments, but we also create readers. And that is a very different uh, work. Yes, there are readers in mind and audience in mind, but we also imagine a certain type of audience and guide audiences into different places, not just through our arguments or in a place of rhetoric, but create a world for them for which you understand it. But I hope I don't sound too airy-fairy with that uh, actually, but that is the way I see them as very different, but uh, they're like good cousins that come from New York to the Caribbean that spend nice uh, July, August, for which they think are summer vacations. It's interesting to me because in, in this field, I feel like a lot of people who aren't like, they don't get to study the art of poetry, but their research is reflected in their poetry, you know? So I think how you feel like they're cousins because in your work and actually like 
I don't know how I would say that, but I, I do feel that in, in the Caribbean, a lot of people are able to tap into many different forms of art, you know, and they're able to really reflect that as they move forward. But if I may add, sir, yes. Issa, is that okay? Um, it's quite interesting in the way we think about knowledge, but the coloniality of knowledge is actually what we come to terms with. This idea that departments and specializations, which is a kind of response to the complexity that capitalism brought, that's not the way that we think and feel in our lives. So I think it serves us well to have a Caribbean studies, which the best of us, Gordon Lewis, even people like Wilson Harris, the George Lamons, the Olive Seniors, who have shown that there's an interdisciplinarity, the new word, transdisciplinarity. These are important words I think we must latch on to just for the sake of at least having a conversation in the academy that this is what Caribbean studies must be and to sit down with literature and what is called academic work and say that both of them deliver insight. That is, that is true. We do bring different forms of information, especially like when you break down the walls of academia and you're being able to bring in the community and what's happening in, you know, your country. How do you feel like your work in activism is and maybe breaking down or combining um, these two different spaces? Um, for me, it's, it's not very intellectual at all. I think it's deeply personal. Uh, in all forms, I, I, I find myself, right, people say that you have a voice, so there's some possession of a skill or a talent. And perhaps I think uh, some people are more blessed than others when I come to terms with them. You know? But I think we discover our voice. And, uh, but we also create an example, whether it be our bodies, the tattoos, the dreadlocks, the earrings, the glasses that we choose to wear. This is a presentation of the self that we have. So this is a long way I'm trying to say that. When I went to academic work, when I, I have a personal library at home that my parents built over many years. And then when I go to a library, I said I wanted to contribute to this. I saw all these books in the space of all these books. I said that I had an idea to give. I don't know what that idea was. And it was more than just vanity. I just felt that in the world, people thought about themselves and the environment that they were in. And I thought I had a story to tell. And that is why I wanted to share my idea. And an academic life allows us to think about the production of ideas, that ideas are valued and they should be archived and consumed and shared and there must be a life of it. And that, that is what moves through our body. The biggest thing that we have in life is that we can't fix the trauma that happened to us. I mean, fix, indefinitely fix it. We can't erase pain. We can't even avoid death or the guarantee of suffering. But what we can do is change the interpretation of it. And ideas have a way of allowing us to see that. So when it comes to creative writing, it's not really an extension of the academic work, which is the way that neoliberal projects happen now. You bring artists into the room to extend a very theoretical idea. Um, it's actually not that, it's that feeling. The reality is the first compulsion was to listen to music that I discovered Rastafari through a very specific person, Bob Marley that it was a film when I watched Shutters with Kimani Mali. I wanted to look like a bad man, you know, and wear a vest and walk around. That uh, I had to watch athletes. When I saw Serena Williams, I remember watching Serena and Venus Williams when I was in primary school. And for almost 20 years, she has dominated the field of tennis. And, it, and I knew there would be a statue for her. I, I knew that when I saw her. I had to pick a side. When I saw Barack Obama in a primary, I read his memoir when I, in 2006, I believe. So when I saw him in a primary, I was like, yo, that is the guy who has to be Democratic nominee and president. It was um, making choices about the things that I wanted. So creative writing is about feeling. It is not to underestimate words like hope and despair and love. 
and AIDS. And that is what academic work sometimes doesn't always do. The best of it does that. It has a very prosaic way in explaining a very complex idea. But sometimes poetry just needs to register a feeling to you to make you understand. In fact, it is part of an ethical mandate, I think, of humanity, where the way that we come to understand each other has to be true literature because we may not get to travel and procure that information on our own in our time. So quickly moving along to what activism is, is that I'm not this type to sit down and read and write and then think that a struggle is happening by the way I've discoursed on an idea. That is not enough for me. We have to hit the streets. We do pamphlets. We engage politicians. We try to remove some. We try to empower others. And then we try to invent our own. I'm part of my society. I don't think that the nation state is a myth. It's very real. And the state has power in making decisions over our lives. Corporate interests do make decisions over our lives. And poor people never asked me for a poem and they were hungry. They wanted my hands and the action that I had to do. So, I mean, you're just going to just kill me like that? That's what you want to do today? Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> I love that. I think that is definitely important in what you're saying because there's different, you know, things that require from different spaces, but you're being genuine and knowing that you have to put in this work. You have to be able to be this bridge, you know, between the community to be able, you know, and to be that voice for others to discover their voice, to bring change, you know, and we can't just wait for it. We have to bring action. We have to, you know, um, stand for what we believe in. And in doing that and embracing all of those skills that you have, um, one of your you know, work is, is youth and development. What do you feel that these youth need to grow and, and to be able to determine and govern themselves self-sufficient? What do they need in Trinidad and Tobago first and then, you know, in Caribbean in general? Um, it's quite interesting. Well, the question of youth development and all my work is, is never an issue of what happens in Trinidad and Tobago. This is the, my resident country, so it has an urgent and immediate focus. But I always think about the Caribbean. I go to sleep with the Caribbean on my mind and in my heart. And I wake up with that as well. And therefore, my idea of youth development, as uh, someone who is the Commonwealth rep here for students and so on, I would tell you mainstreaming, right? That is, uh, how do we get young people into every process and outcome, the inputs and the outcomes of a process of decision-making in the Caribbean? I think we need to move past tokenism. There's a struggle to get young people at the table, but we don't see the youth inputs and the youth outputs and informing macroeconomic decisions and social policy, I think that's a very important place where we have to go. But if I commit to that alone, that is a very bourgeois project. It's very important to work. And I think that the most urgent demand that we have for young people right now is a political education and a radical political one that allows young people, a youth-led one as well, that allows young people to initiate a dialogue to one, develop the capacity to advance the changes that they seek and help articulate it as well. It's not that the feeling's not there, but the feeling is not enough, is that we have to understand all problems are complex. And the political project, therefore, is a complex one, even though we have to speak in a very clear way with very direct objectives for people to move towards. And therefore, cultivating leadership across many sectors, especially among working-class youth, unemployed youth, and under-resourced communities becomes important because the articulation of oftentimes persons like me who become great translators. So in many regards, working on articulation and getting young people at the level of the state could be rendered as a bourgeois project. 
And therefore, we can work in class to you who may not have the articulation that is valued becomes important. And transforming the way that we speak about our changes and social justice becomes important. More importantly, it has to be spatial. It is the environments that don't encourage certain types of leadership, an environment that doesn't give us the quality of communities which we think are important, an environment that starves some artists and privileges some others, even though this life of our artists is hard regardless of your class position. And therefore, ideology, right, becomes important. And that's why young people need a radical political education program that they can initiate among themselves to really say, this is the mandate of our generation. This is how we plan to go about it. Yes, the project is complex, but liberation is a must. Um, any type of way to bring justice and voice and recognition of what's happening. Um, you know, it may, it may not make the biggest change, but it may start somewhere that will spark, you know, another intellectual's mind to be able to change another person's mind to start an, uh, a project, to write some poetry, to not, you know, like in one of your TED Talks, pick up a gun or find a gun in school, right? There's other ways of being able to bring this awareness and be able to, like you said, articulate um, our experiences. You, in all of the many things that you said on today's interview, I feel like are very informed and definitely guided um, to do great work in Trinidad. Who inspires you to live and lead this life? Well, I, I don't want to give certain big ups because if I sound too selective, some people might get upset. <laughs> I'm just joking. But uh, I'm definitely inspired by many persons. Uh, but what inspires me more, if I perhaps may share the purpose of this interview, is that movements and ideas inspire me much more than the examples of people. But we need human examples. I think that is why at a very young age, I love memoir. When I read the memoir, it was, it was seeing how complex decisions were made. And a lot of us stand up for values and say the integrity of a person, but they had to make choices. My father always explained to me, people make choices and people die. And you have to appreciate that. That means we have limited time. And sometimes a choice, they only thought few were available to them. And sometimes in a material way, only few are very available. And coming from a poor country where in the Caribbean we have scarce resources, understanding the scarcity of choice becomes important to the way we think about politics, but even this idea of vision and revolution and social change. And in a very circuitous way to come back to my point is that my idea of uh, socialism is not that I could give you, if there's deprivation that says we need 10 chairs, but we only have five, my ideology of socialism does not give you 10. It looks at the five and says, how could I fairly distribute these five chairs? I cannot invent more resources than they already exist. What I can do is bring justice to the distribution of them, an ethical and fair approach to the way I govern in my life, but also as society. And what does that mean now? Therefore, the person is really deploying a certain philosophy, an idea, and that is what I look up to. So I look up at Marxism, I look up at feminism, I look up to socialism. And of course, it is a Caribbean and America's approach that informs it, a Fidel Castro and what the July 26 movement would do, which is perhaps the sacrifice and the humanity of that project. I look up to Jose Carlos um, Maria Tigui in Peru. And at 35 years old, what he achieved as a Marxist thinker, I look up to Rex Nettleford in Jamaica, of course, and as cultural practitioners. I think of Derek Walcott, and what he would have done in Trinidad and Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago took the best years from Derek Walcott in, in many ways. I see Arthur Lewis, I see Olive Senior, I see the Sistering Collective in Jamaica. 
I see the folk research center in St. Lucia, so I look up to institutions. The struggle that I have in my life is to build an institution that lasts. The Caribbean is a very young society. Independence is a very early project. And I, yes, I want to be valued in my life. Yes, I want to have security for my family and people I care about. And yes, I want to love and enjoy some material objects. But what is most important is that when I die, there's a landscape that people could enter and walk around, which doesn't have to celebrate me, but celebrate institutions with the ideas and ways we go about learning, teaching, and doing practice. And that is what we need as poor countries. We need libraries, we need museums, we need schools, we need more universities, we need national institutions for culture and the arts. And women and men need to lead that project. Yes, preach to our souls because everything, that's exactly what we need. And hopefully, you know, with your work and the many works that all of us are doing, that these institutions will be built, these libraries will be built, the resources and the funds will be given. You know, we just have to learn and hopefully people will realize the value in our projects and our culture and um, the archives that are happening because the future generations definitely need to learn from this because I feel like I was able to get this information as a graduate student, you know, and we have been in school our whole lives. And why is it now that I, in my master's, am I learning about our people and their contributions, you know, or learning about um, the Caribbean or learning about other countries that weren't just, you know, just the United States, because I grew up in Georgia. That's all that was taught, you know. And so to come into this space and realizing the greats, not only just the English speaking, the Francophone, the Spanish speaking Caribbean, all over, right? This importance, this value that we all have this movement and to be able to write, to be able to share, to be able to connect and move forward always is the goal. I know you have a poem to share with us today. Oh, for sure. Of course, I write in the English language and, um, and it is inflected with the Creole of my people. And that is interesting, you know, there was a time when people debated, do we write in Creole exclusively as a nation language or do we write in English? And both languages belong to me. And um, I, of course, do spoken word and I do spoken word in the way that I speak. And uh, perhaps you are privy now to my interviewer's voice, uh, I don't know, a podcast voice, but we do switch our modes. That said, language is very important to our work because it's an entry point not just to conjugate verbs, but to know our culture, to know our landscape, to see mountains, to hear rivers and oceans. And I practice writing French. Um, I read and write French. So that transition was an important break for me because I feel as if I'm on an entirely different body when I start to think about the French language and how I have to write, not just in a register for a French person to appreciate but to transform the way I have come to understand myself, to think in a language, to work through metaphor. And therefore Spanish, I have taken up more seriously because I firmly believe that Trinidad and Tobago must become a multilingual nation, in which it is historically, but we must have Spanish as an official language as we develop into becoming a developed society. Developed not as a first world or by any modernization standards, but a value for ourselves. And the crisis that we have, a migration crisis, a refugee crisis with Venezuelans in Trinidad and Tobago has put this front and center. And it has questioned our humanity and our response. And because you're based in Puerto Rico, I would hope that um, my wishy-washy halfway Spanish, which is just one line, could assist with this poem. And um, I would love to read it. 
In April 2019, a fishing pirogue transporting Venezuelan refugee seekers to Trinidad and Tobago overturned. It was reported that 23 persons drowned, mostly women and children. The title of this poem is Bocas del Dragon. The water spoke its own language, and the face of God was the sight of shore. Something free was in the air, the promise of land. At once, chest burst with Barquisimeto life, pushing towards the distant Republican flag to kneel by, prayer shaped like a boat, overloaded hopes packed row by row, ordered misery for tiny desperations. Aura in aura in you're, you have this thing with like these last lines um, and just <laughs> killing me. And I, when I visited um, Trinidad this year, I didn't, that's when I was like brought to awareness of like the <clears throat> migration of the Venezuelans and like how close you guys were. I don't, it's so crazy how sometimes, you know, just look at the map and you'll realize we're- Trinisuela, Trinisuela, Trinisuela. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Yeah, your last time you're cutting. And then the movement, I love how you put, like, your learned the landscapes and loving being able to feel and see. Um, and those connections, it's just like, okay, imagine being on the boat. I even think your, the recent poem you published about Haiti, you know, oh, yes. this this movement, the waters, you know, and what where is it taking us? Where are we going, you know, on our yes. journeys? How are we all connected in a way, spiritually and physically? Uh, I think uh, in geography, there's a concept called the death scape. And oceans have a particular meaning for us in this part of the world, where the ocean is a trail for my ancestors in Africa. The ocean is a trail for the journey and the spirits and the dreams of indentured peoples from India. Haitians from Podope trying to get to Miami. It's no different from uh, Algeria and so people in Africa trying to get to Europe, Spain and Italy. And now we see Venezuelans. People give up their entire lives. This idea of a career, these bourgeois achievements and value to bring babies on their chests to smugglers in the middle of the night to move from one country to the next, knowing that they could die. And then some arrive here in the jaws of the village in South Trinidad, and then become grocery baggers, security guards, human trafficked into sex work, bartenders. That is a very difficult life. So my solidarity is with the working poor anywhere in the world. And to understand that it is complex and difficult, and um, we have feelings about it. And perhaps, if I may, Issa, I think this is the what I hope to contribute to some of the work, part of my contribution is sometimes on the phone with persons who are very intellectual and they talk a lot about the problems and they could even discursively understand what I'm trying to say, to see the premise, to challenge it, which is important for sharpening our weapons for justice and struggle. But my example really comes from people who work in institutions and movements because tell me what justice looks like when you have to deal with 10 different egos, 10 different leaders from 10 different NGOs, 10 different trade unions. Tell me what justice looks like when you give out pamphlets in City Gate or the major bus stand 
in your area. Tell me what justice looks like when you have to send out press releases and spend up the night till three o'clock in the morning trying to get consent and approval and then procuring signatures afterwards from endorsements. For endorsements, sorry. You know, tell me that justice, and that is the one that I want to be a part of. But if you think this is about tweets or phone calls or conference presentations, which do a very important job, it's just not the place where I do my work. I have to lose a lot of minutes on the phone. Probably telecommunication companies benefit the most from my lifestyle, where I have to call, do work, spend gas money to repair a car, drive into communities, do workshops, where the people will not remember you and you won't remember them sometimes. And you believe that you are an intervention to help maybe one or two persons and decide that we are on, where we have no resources and we are challenging dominant cultures, whether it be patriarchy and capitalism and violence to our environment or the indignities that exist but become commonplace. You know that you are here on the losing team but you still play each time thinking you could win. And that is the important work that we do. So tell me about that and I will follow. By that, so I don't follow many persons. And many of these people are sometimes artists who have a very individual commitment. Many of these persons are academics with very individual commitment. And even activists who see their individual commitments. Collective commitment is what I'm about. And maybe that's why I have a respect for activists and politicians in a certain way because they have to work with more people than just their own ideas. Wow, that you're powerful, man. Like I'm just over here, like you see, you got work to do. Okay, <laughs> like get out of your own way and get with the people because yes, exactly. You are speaking to me, and yes, Almikar, how are you on your way? What is my way right now? COVID nineteen. I showed us how that is random. How it comes into our lives when it pieces. And in an environment of such public suffering, we need to find these compartments of solitude, if we can. So it's quite interesting what listening does, the silence does to listen and not disavow what we hear, but not get distracted by it. And sometimes to go in my yard, I see that you garden and realize that the taste of mangoes are the same, you know, seasons will continue. So that is my way right now. It has to do with a lot of listening, much deeper listening. And, and somehow listening always leads to writing. Listening always leads to communication. Listening always seeks reparations to relationships in our lives. It comes from listening. People who seek to repair things and to write and or to believe before they listen. I, I want to know how, if, not as effective, how true is that? So my way, a lot of the listeners happened. Uh, recently, I was shortlisted to a very significant Emerging Writers Prize in the region, and I did not win. And I have full respect for the judges. I have full respect and admiration for the administration agency, the Bocas Lit Fest. I have love, support, and solidarity, and respect for Amanda Chukwan, the winner. And I have no critique of not being the winner of that, but I have an ego. And when I did not win, as someone who is very competitive, I thought that since May 2018, when I made the choice to become a writer, and I wanted to be one of the best emerging writers in the Caribbean, I said, Amilka, give yourself two years to be there. I thought that this process, this award, would have affirmed that for me. 
No, they didn't. What they told me is that you have more work to do. And now I have the angst and I have perspective. But trust me, I have angst. Not to beat somebody in a competition, but to be my best, where winning becomes a little more self-evident to judges and persons who read. And I'll continue to do the work that my community has brought me to do. When I am a finalist, my community is also a finalist in terms of their stories. And therefore, with love for the judges, the award and the award winner, and all other writers who dream to be on a long list, who dream to be on a short list, and of course dream to win the ultimate prize, which has an ability to tell the world this is a writer and this is writing of merit. That defeat has pointed me into the same direction I thought my success would. And that's my way right now. That is beautiful. I totally agree with that journey and the fact that you know that you are, you know, definitely ahead and going along your way. You're not where you started, but there is work to be done and don't give up. Continue to keep writing, continue to bring voice and show us what is life like in Trinidad and Tobago? What is life like in the Caribbean and the goals and the progress that is happening um, by your people and the people who live here, who move here, who continue to uplift these islands on their shoulders. And I'm just grateful to get to know you, to be connected with you. So it's a journey, you know, one day at a time. Yes, it is. Thank yes. you so much for the opportunity to contribute to your space. And uh, this is beautiful for Caribbean dialogue across uh, arbitrary national borders. I think we are all parishes of one Caribbean and someone lied to tell us that we were countries. Yes, oh yes. Tell the people where can they connect with you? Where can they read your work? Where can they support you? Shout out your socials. Well, if you want to meet me, the first thing you have to do is come Curie Junction where I'll be eating doubles or I'm sitting down on the promenade in Port of Spain eating a pie. So you always meet me in the streets. Like anyone knows me, you, know, you could find me in the road. You know, I'm definitely on my campus because I'm a student and I teach and um, I have to do a lot of work. All this work is possible because I read. I think people elect me, you know, politicians are elected. I'm, I was elected to read a lot so that I could help communicate some ideas and visions. But you find me in the streets. But if you have to find me on the socials, because you're not here in Trinidad and Tobago, um, you could see me at, at Amilka Sonatan. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I have a website, www.amilkasonatan.com. The work is definitely inspirational. Thank you. <laughs> um, for all of my listeners who continue to just celebrate all of these people on their journey, remember that your movement is a part of your process and to trust it. Until next time, this is Issa Cosette. Y'all be blessed. Mm -hmm.